0: This is Joya Italiano. This
1: is Jeff Ekman. And
0: welcome to Oh, That's a Thing, a podcast about the real science and sci-fi movies.
1: Even if you haven't seen the movie, don't worry. We use the movies as jumping off points for some pretty awesome and real topics.
0: That's right. We're not experts at all. We're actually just a couple of goons who Googled some stuff. But this stuff is pretty cool.
1: Yeah, so sit back, relax, maybe learn a thing or two. Here we go.
0: Here we go. <laughs> source code. Source code. <laughs> That's what Talking we are Talking
1: about the movie Source code. <laughs> From the writer of the Flatliners remake, but more importantly, the director of Moon, Duncan Jones. That is much more important. Yeah, I mean, he's a great science fiction director, the (laughs) son of David Bowie. What? Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, Moon was his first feature. Fuck. He's brilliant. This is
0: Duncan Jones? Yeah. Okay, all right. Okay, yeah. It's great. Okay, let's listen to the (laughs) trailer. Let's listen
1: to the trailer. Nice.
0: Sean.
1: I can see that you think you know me, but I don't know who you are. My name is Captain Coulter Stevens.
0: You're kind of freaking me out. Talk to me, Sean. I don't know who Sean is, and I don't know who you are. Welcome back, Captain Stevens. Where am I? You are inside the source code. What is the source code? It's a computer program, Captain. Source code enables you to cross over into another man's identity in the last eight minutes of his life. At 7.48 this morning, a bomb exploded on a train outside of Chicago, killing everyone on board. A man named Sean Fentress was on that train. He is now you. Think, Captain, remember back. Who bombed the train? I don't know who bombed the train. Then try again. Wait, no, I... (sighs) What would you do if you knew you had less than eight minutes to live? I'd
1: make those seconds count.
0: I'm asking you to have the decency to let me try. Yeah, they had to incorporate a lot into the trailer because it's the, some heady shit in here. It's a
1: big, it's a big premise. Yeah. they gotta lay it out quick so that you're on board and then and then play with it. on them. board. Oh shit! The train. I didn't mean to do that.
0: <laughs> I mean, it is funny that the movie is like. 90 minutes long so it. I think that was probably my biggest complaint is like such intricate concepts that they have to kind of tie up pretty quickly because well, of we've,
1: that we've done Edge of Tomorrow on this show before right. which is a very similar premise you know the Groundhog Day idea but the thing is like when you're reliving eight minutes over and over again that's yeah. kind of too short of a time to really make a long-ass movie. And right. Because so, how much ex- how much exploration can he do in eight minutes?
0: Uh, yeah, walking through the corridor of the train being like, oh, oh I got my soda pop spilled on my shoe again. Yeah, exactly. You know, the details.
1: <laughs> Quick tidbit before we get started about the eight minutes thing. Mm-hmm. They kind of explain in the movie, I believe that the reason that it's eight minutes is that that's the length of time that the short-term memory holds things and so they have like the dead body of the guy from the train or something Mm. and so his last eight minutes can be relived over and over again okay some explanation like that but i wound up looking into it and currently we think that short-term memory lasts about 15 seconds to maybe up to 30 seconds Mm -hmm. and that only seven items can be stored in short-term memory at a time
0: okay all right, at least they, <laughs> along with all of the psycho babble nonsense that they put into this movie to like just explain it away. Mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, I appreciate eight, eight right. minutes, huh? Yeah, exa- exactly. I, mean, I had read that this is very similar to The Manchurian Candidate or makes a lot of references to that. Now that was a book, but then they made it into two movies. There's one from 1962 and then one in 2004 which, Yeah, I saw that yeah. one, I think, with Yeah, is that Denzel? That's Denzel, Denzel right? Denzel
1: and Liev Schreiber?
0: Okay. Is it Liev Schreiber I in there? I couldn't tell you because I didn't see it. We'll find but it. <laughs> so I hadn't seen any of them, but similar in the sense. That you know a veteran comes back from war, but is without his knowledge being used as a tool in a secret military program. There's also in the first movie the guy is quote unquote triggered by a code involving playing cards, which I hadn't made that connection just because it had been. Yeah, but yeah, there is. Some yeah, shit there's with that, a bunch right? of stuff
1: where it's like name the cards that you're seeing right now for complicated reasons that are weird. Right,
0: but <laughs> you're I didn't like, totally oh, understand. I had actually read that Jake Gyllenhaal was on board the production before Duncan Jones, and it was after he saw Moon that he suggested him as a director. Oh. Well, that makes sense. <laughs> I also read that Topher Grace had been considered for the lead role.
1: He could have, okay. <laughs>
0: and Lindsay Lohan was originally cast as Christina, who's Michelle Monaghan's character, but producers had to recast the role <laughs> when her legal issues conflicted with the filming uh, schedule because this was kind of around the time where she was a going, going hot off the deep fucking end. Mess. Yeah. yeah, and then <laughs> so there's a lot of the. Acting that Jake Gyllenhaal has to do is just kind of the what's going on, I'm disoriented kind right, of shit. Right, right. And apparently he had these earbuds on during those scenes because then Duncan Jones would either just play random songs or static buzz every here and there to <sighs> be like, oh, look disoriented, look confused.
1: So the, he was, instead buzz. of like shouting out from off camera, look confused, yeah. he was putting confusing shit in his ear. Precisely,
0: instead That's of just cool. hoping that Jake Gyllenhaal, after All of the years years he's been a (laughs) movie star. I just don't know if he knows how to look confused without having this fucking static buzz in his ear. Well, finally, what you were saying before is with the eight minutes thing, none of the scenes in the movie were actually eight minutes long. The longest lasts seven minutes and 30 seconds.
1: Really? Yeah. Well, it's also like, like there's a point where he stops the bomb on the train Mm -hmm. and then his life continues on past the eight minutes. Right. Like it doesn't just disappear, which is just like a an error in the movie I feel like
0: well that's interesting that you say that because I was looking into a lot of shall we just transition into it do you have anything else about the movie you want to say I have
1: one other thing I wanted to say just to quickly describe the term source code oh yeah which is that just refers to the base code that a computer program runs on Mm -hmm. source code is usually protected by the company that created it because it's like the secret sauce that makes their technology run okay like think of it like a recipe for a computer program in a way gotcha and that like they gotta keep If Apple let everybody know the source code for the iPhone, then everybody could go make their own iPhone.
0: Just like if everybody had the algorithm to figure out how to send people back in time to catch bombers, Mm -hmm. then they would get a monopoly on that industry. They would do that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, cool. Thanks for the explanation. Yeah. But okay, so let's unpack some of the shit in this movie because a lot of fun stuff. Jake Gyllenhaal's consciousness is inserted into another man's body through a procedure that requires a miracle exception from the laws of nature involving quantum mechanics and quote-unquote parabolic calculus. That's where my search began, but it did not take much Googling to realize that parabolic calculus is not a thing. And
1: <laughs> they were just using random words Correct. that sound science yeah.
0: You're like, ah, parabolic, That yeah. sounds. that's a thing. That's
1: a calculus that right. sounds important.
0: So I stumbled upon this blog from Discover Magazine and there's this guy Jim Kakalios of the University of Minnesota and he has this YouTube video with a bunch of views on the science of the movie Watchmen this is after he wrote a book called The Science of Superheroes so more recently he wrote a book called The Amazing Story of Quantum Mechanics so he he then wrote this guest post for Discover Magazine addressing the ending of Source Code in particular so okay spoiler alert yeah we're gonna talk about the ending here right Coulter which is Jake Gyllenhaal's like the veteran character. Mm -hmm. He learns that the reason his last memory is being attacked in his helicopter in Afghanistan is that he in fact died in the crash and that's why his mangled body is being kept artificially alive and his brain can be activated and set... Into inhabit the body of Sean
1: Right it was like he was dead so they had To do a bunch of medical stuff and also because he's Dead they can do whatever they yeah, want legally but... Right Right? yeah like... exactly
0: But so I forget well like how far that Into the movie that is where you learn because again only 90 minutes but it does like...
1: reveal things kind of Slowly <laughs> right even though yeah all
0: things considered mm-hmm. Anyway so he then manages to Identify the bomber and provides all that information To Vero Farmiga and Jeffrey Wright's Characters right, right. right? but it's Kind of vague whether Coulter is going to Parallel realities or whether he's in this like, quantum neurological simulation.
1: Well, they like tell him throughout the movie that he's in a simulation mm-hmm. recreating the eight minutes, but then, yeah, it starts to become clear that he's actually entering a parallel universe, like temporary access to a parallel universe, I think they call it. E- exactly. Yeah, so yeah. this is where
0: he starts to kind of comment on that. Now, some physicists argue that time travel is only possible via parallel realities. So you don't necessarily go back in time in your own reality, but to an alternate Earth's past. Interesting. So in this case, if you could travel into the the past you don't need to worry about the grandfather paradox which Mm -hmm. is that you know what if you went back and killed your grandpa which prevents your birth so you wouldn't be able to go back and ice grandpa
1: because then it creates a whole new universe where grandpa never existed
0: exactly but in parallel realities you can kill as many grandparents as you want (laughs) yeah
1: there you go perfect
0: so back to the movie Everyone celebrates the bomber being captured and Coulter convinces Goodwin to send him back one last time to try to save the passengers on the train. At the end of the eight minutes, he convinces Goodwin to terminate his life support, allowing him to die as the world and his father believed happened months ago in Mm -hmm. Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. So he stops the first bomb from exploding on the train, hands the bomber off to the authorities and kisses his chick just as the eight minute mark is reached. And then that's when his life support is ended. Mm -hmm. But on the train, as you were talking about before, Sean Coulter, is still alive after the kiss, which implies that Coulter goes on to live happily ever after in Sean's body with Coulter's mind, while Coulter's deformed body still remains at the Nellis lab.
1: Right, this is something that I don't think the movie really mentions, where I'm like, what happened to this Sean guy? Yeah. He died in exactly. the process of this. You Precisely.
0: Know? So, I mean, okay, so, well, first thing is the bomb never went off in, in this reality mm-hmm. I just de- mm-hmm. described, so the paradox there is there was no reason to activate Coulter and send him into the source code. Right. So this indicates that we are, in fact, witnessing two alternate realities, one where Goodwin is arrested after pulling the plug on Coulter after, you know, Source Code succeeds, and then the other where Sean Coulter is still alive and the Source Code project has never been activated to begin with.
1: Right, because I think they have a scene where Jeffrey Wright, the guy from Westworld, is like hearing that there was a foiled train bombing that didn't happen, and he was like, uh, someday Source Code will have its day in the sun. (laughs)
0: Right, right. like,
1: you know, they're like, someday we'll have a, a perfect terrorism event for our universe and we can learn if this works
0: well yeah and so this is where yeah towards the end is where it gets very like oh like it's very inventive and I liked it but that's Mm -hmm. you know there's so many of these paradoxes because in the reality where the bomb doesn't explode on the train is Coulter's consciousness in two places at once like what Mm -hmm. happens to this Sean guy yeah so in the end according to Kokelios or this guy whatever Uh Coulter is not conscious in two places at once he's awake and aware in Sean's body and at the same time his damaged body is at the Nellis lab so essentially brain dead and kept art artificially alive until it's necessary for him to be activated. He might not be activated for weeks, months, or years later. So in that case, there's no paradox because Coulter in Sean's body is only awake and conscious at one point in time.
1: Even though there's a second Coulter in his own body in that parallel universe. Yeah, but it's
0: like, but what is alive if you're not conscious? Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. So as I was reading this, he's explaining that this paradox is not like Schrodinger's cat, which I had never, have you heard of this thought experiment?
1: Yes. I think we may have talked touched it's on possible. it once or twice Do you before, remember? But yeah, it's basically that, like, a cat is put into a box with radioactive element which can either kill it or not. Yeah, and you it's don't unpredictable
0: know... when it emits that radiation that'll kill the, and the it, cat. And the
1: cat is not alive or dead until you observe whether it's alive Precisely. or dead. And then it retroactively does whatever it does.
0: Exactly. So, like, according to quantum mechanics, it's considered to be simultaneously both alive and dead until somebody opens the box mm-hmm. and is like, ah, oh, a dead cat! But, okay, well, I, I don't remember the purpose of the thought experiment. It's usually it in was. reference
1: to like the Heisenberg uncertainty principle yeah, and stuff it was, like that. So it
0: was described by Erwin Schrödinger in nineteen thirty five and sort of as a thought experiment to either illustrate or some might say, like, kinda of shit on this <laughs> theory associated with the Niels Bohr, which is the like structure of the atom and incorporates quantum theory and shit. So mm-hmm. Anyway, so that <laughs> that ties into this. But going back to the movie, to answer your question in terms of what happens to Sean's consciousness, according to Kakalios, basically he believes Sean is dead and when Coulter's mind jumps into his body, it overwrites Sean's consciousness. Because the train would have exploded anyway, right? Like right. he would have died at the end of the eight minutes. It's essentially like every time Coulter enters the source code at 7.50 a.m., he essentially kills Sean or at least robs him of the last eight minutes of his life. Right. I think the implication is that to the Jeffrey Wrights of this movie, right. was like... Well, Who cares he, mean, was gonna yeah, anyway. he was going to die anyway? Yeah, he was going to die anyway. Are we? Do we care about the mundane shit he would do in the last eight minutes right. if it means saving hundreds of thousands well, of people? Well, in
1: that way, it's kind of not like... Because they. I don't think that they really believe that they're creating a parallel universe or, or at least entering it, yeah. really. It's that they believe that they're creating a simulation based on the memory, so that you can go and, and learn more,
0: Yeah, I guess? Well, and you really could go either way. I mean, you kind of have the, like, matrix style of the simulation thing of, like, plugging right. somebody in, but then it's also cool to think about, oh, in this alternate universe, maybe he doesn't have to die in Afghanistan and that be it. He could just move right. on and just... You know, fool this woman for the rest exactly, of her life.
1: Exactly, that he like, was this person that she knew he before. Just lived that she fell in love with the other dude. She yeah. really had a crush on Sean, not this I guy. Guess it
0: truly proves, like, it is not what's on the inside that counts. She's like, you look the same, but your personality sucks. Though.
1: Well, on that front, it just, I think the movie's sidestepping that. Yeah. And that we're, yeah. like, oh, seeing I mean, this whole in well, the I, plot.
0: Again, I think for what it is, like, I got as full of a story that mm-hmm. this could be in 90s minutes. Right. You know? they could have easily flushed it out a little bit more so it wasn't just like, what? But... You know, I was satisfied by the end. <laughs> yeah,
1: well, I love, you know, the Duncan Jones movies do seem to leave you with something to think about at the yeah. end of it. Like in Moon, at the end, there's like a twist where it turns out that he was a clone and that right. the clones are all, you know, in this horrifying situation. And I was thinking about that. I'm still thinking about that every yeah. now and then. The situation that this company came to that wound up destroying these people's lives who can only live for three years. Totally. And so this movie has a similar thing where, even though I don't think it's nearly as good of a movie as Moon, it really does leave you with this question of like yeah if you were to go into the past is that a parallel universe and like it may not be as meaningful or realistic in uh-huh. terms of like what may literally happen over the next 40 mm-hmm. years but I don't know I just I was left with like a lot to think about
0: yeah I think it's kind of that debate between H.G. Wells and the Jules Verne yeah, thing that we were talking about totally. where it's like H.G. Wells was not about having the most like scientifically sound explanation it's, it's really experiencing what that what the human side of it is. Right. And I think that's, what differentiates the two movies is that moon does not have to be bigger than the fucking world. You know, it's like, right. cause it, it's not trying to combine like it's crash, bam, boom. And right. so, you know, on the edge of your seat thriller, right. it's like, you're really living the experience with Sam Rockwell. And that's also a testament to his acting and yeah. like just his performance.
1: And it's kind of interesting to me that Duncan Jones wrote that one, but did not write this one. Right. And that like, he saw this script and was like, Oh, that's the kind of script that I would enjoy totally and do and make a good movie. Well, and it hits and all
0: of. the points of just like, you know, Literally in the trailer being like, what would you do if you only had eight minutes <laughs> yeah, to live? I'd make those minutes count, you know.
1: I guess at the end of the day, go watch Edge of Tomorrow. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's the end of this. Science.
1: So in the movie, for the most part, as we've mentioned, what you think Hall is doing is going into a perfect simulation of the past and being able to learn about this train bombing. Mm. And as far as experiencing a virtual world, today we currently have VR headsets, we have drugs that can sure, that can do sure. stuff for those and there are ideas on the horizon about nanobots manipulating our individual neurons to create sensations and feelings and visualizations in your mind that feel as real as though they were really happening
0: which is crazy but definitely not beyond the realm of possibility
1: at right all. and b- quick side note about that nanobot future where we've got like a million of them in our bloodstream mm-hmm. there's a point to make about how we'd just be like lying on tables experiencing climbing Everest or whatever the hell we want Oh yeah but also those nanobots will monitor our health and effectively turn us into superhumans and they could do workouts for us while we're asleep and stuff and i'm just saying right the wally future is more complicated than it seems it's
0: more complicated but still fuck that like <laughs> fuck take that. a walk yeah.
1: <laughs> exactly <laughs> well you know with the nanobots too if they can carry hemoglobin better than your blood can then maybe you could lay at the bottom of a pool for 4 hours and not need to replenish your oxygen That's a side, that's a side (laughs) issue. So a few years ago, using precisely targeted lasers, researchers were able to manipulate the neurons in worms' brains to take control of their behavior. Interesting. The implications of that are crazy, but for right now, let's focus on what's going on in the human brain. I wound up reading about this brain manipulation that allows people to experience another time and place. So Pierre... Megavond (laughs) and his colleagues at the Feinstein Institute for Medical Research wanted to pinpoint the area of the brain that processes locations and places. Okay. They scanned the brains of volunteers while showing them images of various objects and scenes Mm -hmm. and then recorded the corresponding areas of the brain that lit up. Then they stimulated that area of the brain, which caused a complex visual hallucination.
0: I wonder how they stimulated it.
1: Using electricity and various, you know, like mag or not magnets, but
0: yeah, what pulses, whatever, electromagnets, lasers, (laughs) yeah, science, science.
1: And it transported this volunteer back to his old job working at a pizzeria. Oh! So apparently, he saw the pizzeria around him, smelled the smells, and genuinely experienced it as though he was there.
0: I love this. This is a way that we can like avoid this whole not being able to travel back in time.
1: (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Stimulating a nearby area of the brain caused the hallucination of a staircase and a blue closet in his home. Repeating the experiment also caused the exact same hallucinations. Wow. So these experiments are leading to the question of what is really real to us? Right. Like, are we actually experiencing the world around us? Or is the world around us being taken in via sensors and then reinterpreted into this VR world that our brain creates Mm -hmm. and that we actually live in?
0: Well, just to interject real quick, I think what is real seems to be what like consensus is, right? Because right. what's real to us individually, yeah. you're like who really cares what's real except for the purpose of like civilization and stuff and we all kind of have to be like that this is that. Exactly. Is there. And then
1: you can through corroboration know right. that you are actually experiencing yeah, something. Totally. So, I read this story about an old woman named Rosalie who in her 90s started seeing incredibly real hallucinations. Mm-hmm. And it turned out she was suffering from what's known as Charles Bonnet syndrome, mm-hmm. which was originally used to describe hallucinations related to eye disease, but now encompasses neurological elements, too. Mm -hmm. Charles Bonnet syndrome happens in people with really fucked up vision. Oh, I have fucked up vision. Oh, you do? Well, you've got glasses now, right? So like your vision is 20-20 with the glasses, Oh, with glasses, yeah. So Charles Bonnet syndrome, it's a consequence of the sustained lack of light passing through the eyes, Mm -hmm. which causes the visual centers of the brain to lean harder on visual memory. Oh. So when you're experiencing the outside world, normally you're using both your brain's visual memory from what you know A person or a thing looks like and the actual visual input that you're getting sure So if it's constantly fucked up and mm-hmm. wrong over a long period of time Your brain is leaning heavily on your memories mm-hmm. and then that's filling in the blanks in your eyes
0: Okay, makes sense.
1: Like I remember my as my grandfather was losing his eyesight He didn't realize how bad it was until he took a wrong turn and discovered that he couldn't read any of the street signs. Because when driving on roads that he had been on his whole life, he could read the signs clearly. But then he realized that his brain was leaning more on the visual memory of what that road sign was supposed to say.
0: And he didn't realize until he was like...
1: Until he had to read something new that his eyes weren't working anymore. That's crazy. So you ever do one of those things like in elementary school where there's like two dots on a piece of paper, and if you hold it up to your, in front of you and you put it in the right space, one of the dots can disappear? Yeah. That's because it's positioned over the spot in your eye where the optic nerve enters, mm-hmm. which should be a blind spot, but you don't see a black space in there. Your brain makes up what should be there. Sure. And so because your brain doesn't know that there's actually a dot in that small spot, it fills it up with white space.
0: Okay.
1: So- your brain is doing like all of these error corrections that aren't even based on accuracy, but are based on keeping your own understanding of the world intact.
0: Exactly. Oh my God, this has so much to do with my next topic. That's great. Yeah.
1: (laughs) You know, this also can explain why ghost sightings happen and various (laughs) other things that people believe that they see that is just weird and and feels real. And also it's related to why our brain usually paves over continuity errors in movies. Like we correct the things that don't make sense. One last point with Charles Bonnet syndrome, your eyes are working so poorly that your brain tries to compensate and winds up making mistakes. Mm -hmm. All this leads to the question of whether the brain could do the whole visual world on its own without outside input.
0: Like meaning without eyesight.
1: Right. Like we do it in dreams all the time or with like a hypnosis and various meditation methods, you can really feel like you're in another place. But maybe if you wanna feel like you're in your childhood home again, we could just stimulate that part of the brain and then you can literally feel like you're
0: there. I I like that. I like being able to go back. Well, and certainly when you think about the implications of I don't know, solving crimes and shit like yes. that. If, you know, if someone's like, I I'm a witness but I can't remember what happened at right. all. It's all happened so fast. That's so crazy.
1: And that's what this movie's kind of doing Yeah. <laughs> what if I, you could
0: Well, I feel like let's I kind of just want to roll right into it because it's so it's so on par. Now, I found a story that the Boston Globe was telling. This is from 2016, I believe. It's a story about a British guy named Alpha Cabeja, I think. I don't know. He was riding his bike and got hit by a van with enough force to knock his brain out of place inside his skull. So he came out of a medically induced coma three weeks later and doctors told his family that he might not remember anything from before the accident or remember them or who he was or anything. So based on our memento shit, I believe this is retrograde amnesia, Uh not enterograde, which is what Guy Dumbface had, which is why he like forgets after every day.
1: Right. Retrograde is the long term loss, not the short term loss.
0: Yeah, you can't. Exactly. Like, okay. you can't remember, like, what happened before the accident, but you can learn new shit, whereas right. Guy Dumbface could not learn new shit. Could not shit. make he new to, memories. Yeah, exactly. Right, right. So, but in Cabeja's case, he woke up full of memories. He remembered that he was going to see his girlfriend who was pregnant with twins with names Sky and Nikita. Whoa. He remembered tucking the picture of the ultrasound in the pages of his notebook, one that he used to write down song ideas and thoughts, and was, like, asking nurses if they had seen it. He also remembered the day of the accident. He was cycling to his girlfriend's flat from a job interview, assistant to the director. Director of operations at MI6, working with a man called Michael Mitchells. He thought the interview went really well and he remembered that he owned a small private plane and, like, all of these kind of fucking details, none of which were true. There was no pregnancy, no private plane, no job interview. But
1: separately, there was a guy who had all those things true (laughs) who died the same day.
0: And he even realized only after he called MI6 that their offices had been closed on the day of the accident. But he was, like, really convinced about this. Like, you know, imagine if you're like, no, but I swear this No, happens. but I you're have like, these
1: specific memories. Yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. I think at
0: first his family and friends were kind of playing along to see, but then uh-huh. eventually they're like, what's going on?
1: That's like one of those losing your mind movies where you show up and you're like, you're my wife. And she's like, I haven't seen this man before. Well, yeah, yeah in exactly. In my life.
0: <laughs> but it turns out the memories weren't completely out of nowhere because related things had been happening in his life before the accident. A number of his friends and colleagues were having kids. Twins, he said, ran in his family. Uh-huh. He had a girlfriend. He at one point had applied for a position at MI6 years before the accident And he had recently seen a film that featured the plane he remembered owning. Huh. So it would appear that these building blocks were somewhere in his head and it might have been an attempt oh, of man. his brain to make sense of the three weeks when he was unconscious in the hospital. And it so just
1: like put all of this information together.
0: memories from elsewhere to fill in the last weeks when he was in the hospital. Yeah. So Julia Shaw, she's a memory researcher at London South Bank University, she told the globe, quote, when you wake up, your brain is trying to reconnect pieces because your brain is trying to recover that sense of you, that sense of memory, that sense of history, and in that process of recovery and essentially healing, you can make connections in ways that are fantastical and impossible so again to your point memories are just malleable and they right. morph each time you remember a thing to accommodate the new information so sometimes that might mean just like small tweaks or details that you're like oh no, I remember you did this and right. it's like no you didn't you did this you know well it's just or, crazy Like yeah. you,
1: you wake up and your brain just sees a bunch of dots and you're like they're connected yeah I know they're connected and it's like but like the important ones are missing and so you can wind up creating a completely different picture out of those dots right than the accurate one totally that's so cool yeah
0: I know and so that's what's so bizarre is you think about people being implanted with false memories and Uh shit like that and then there's maybe you're just a damn liar it's really hard it's It's like are you a liar if you really believe your memories to be true
1: (laughs) I don't think so if you really believe them to be true that's not a lie it's you know because I do think that lying comes from a place of like, you know the truth and you're going against that. Well,
0: and then also like wondering how to deal with that because if somebody just had this traumatic accident where they got hit by a van while biking, you're going to want to play along, but eventually they're going to be like, I have some evidential proof. You do not have a plane. You do drive this Camaro.
1: (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Sorry to burst your bubble. Yeah, especially if it's like, the life I was living was amazing. Yeah, exactly.
0: (laughs) I was uh, the highest paid actor in Hollywood, as I recall. Mm -hmm. Private plane drove me here, flew me here. (laughs)
1: Exactly. Uh. So... The bad guy terrorist in this movie is actually based on a real guy named David Hahn, who is known as the Radioactive Boy Scout or the Nuclear Boy Scout. From
0: what time is this man? This
1: is in the mid-90s. Really? Mm -hmm. Okay, all right. He even had a TV movie made about him. By the way, I want to say before this that, like this character is obviously very loosely based on this person because (laughs) this person did something crazy that nobody else could do. Like in the movie, he like finds the terrorist and the terrorist is like, not many people could build that. Uh And it's like, okay, Okay. you built a bomb that's special. And, (laughs) and so this guy, the real guy, I don't think he wanted to kill anybody, but he did build a nuclear reactor in his backyard. Oh, so in 1994 at age 17, this boy scout named David Hahn Attempted to build a homemade breeder reactor, which is a nuclear reactor that generates more fissile material than it consumes. At
0: 17?
1: At 17. God. It was originally thought to be this great technology in the 60s, the breeder reactors. Uh But then we found plenty more uranium in the world and figured out better ways to enrich it. And so the breeder reactor wound up falling by the wayside. Gotcha. So this Boy Scout... Was super interested in chemistry, often doing small experiments that caused little explosions or other issues, mm-hmm. as you would expect from a brilliant kid. Don't youthful boy. Mm-hmm. He became obsessed with collecting samples of every element of the periodic table, including the radioactive ones. Oh boy! So he got americ americ americium from smoke detectors, he got thorium from camping lanterns, he got radium from clocks, he got tritium from gun sights. Like, apparently these things are all around us, and if you know how to distill them or figure them out, you can do this.
0: He's a resourceful radioactive boy.
1: Exactly. Eventually, he decides to build this breeder reactor in secret in a backyard shed at his mother's house in Michigan. Mm -hmm. He builds it out of a bored-out block of lead. Oh, and, a, and used lithium from a thousand dollars worth of batteries to purify the thorium ash, <laughs> using like, a Bunsen you? burner.
0: I'm just like, where's your mom? Like you're amazing, where but is also your like, mom? I've been hoarding these batteries all school year.
1: And using a Bunsen burner, he fucking can hell. purify thorium ash. Okay. He pretended to be an adult scientist and sent letters to many professionals to learn more and be taken seriously, and people offered advice on how to build it. Right. Because <laughs> like, they didn't know that he was some 17-year-old kid right. doing this in I his shed. I feel like this
0: story has a happy ending. It does not. I know. I'm just
1: it very much, unfortunately, does not. Oh, boy. The reactor was never able to reach critical mass, but it did emit dangerous levels of radiation. So, a little freaked out, he decided to dismantle the experiment... But by chance, before he did, local police pulled him over for an unrelated thing, Mm -hmm. and they found material in his car that seemed weird, and he warned them that it was radioactive. Okay. So the police then alert the higher-ups, which triggered a federal radiological emergency response involving the FBI and the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Oh, boy. And in 1995, a year later, the EPA designated his mother's property a Superfund Hazardous Materials Cleanup Site and dismantled the shed and buried it all as low-level radioactive waste in Utah. Okay. His mother worried that she would lose her house if people found out the extent of the radiation had already collected a majority of the radioactive material and threw it out in the regular garbage.
0: Ugh. Mom. I know. Dum dum.
1: <laughs> Soon after his lab was dismantled, he made Eagle Scout. <laughs> the story gets really sad from here. Oh god because a year later his mom committed suicide that combined with a lot of other issues in his life he became incredibly depressed he joined the navy Uh and spent four years working actually on a nuclear submarine or a nuclear-based aircraft something to that effect Mm -hmm. and then he turned to alcohol and in 2007 actually he was charged with larceny for allegedly removing a number of smoke detectors from the halls of his apartment building with the intention of getting americium Mm -hmm. from them in his mugshot, his face is covered with sores, which investigators thought might be due to radiation poisoning, and he was sentenced to 90 days in jail. Then, many years later, in 2016, he died at the age of 39, apparently from alcohol poisoning.
0: Oh, man.
1: So it sounds like he wound up with a very depressed life. Right. Uh, after this, this whole like promising of sorts kind of start of genius, you know?
0: Well, and I'm sure there's probably a lot going on, but it does make you wonder in terms of the the, the mental toll that radiation poisoning at your house maybe right. took on the mom. Like, I, I mean, right. who knows?
1: And uh, the mom, and then I know, like, he refused radiation treatments or testing for yeah. many, many years, and apparently he wasn't really irradiated from that experience, yeah although it's possible that in 2007 he was doing more experiments.
0: So this guy wasn't trying to be a fucking terrorist. No, and that's
1: the thing where it's like, the movie claiming to kind of loosely base the character on him is like, beyond the fact that the guy actually builds a thing that other people can can't build yeah this david Hahn didn't want to kill anybody he was just like a misguided genius with a really tragic story
0: right i mean it's interesting that even after getting busted with radioactive stuff in the back of his car that he was able to like skirt the law long enough to get eagle scout or whatever it sounds like it wasn't
1: like illegal so much as it was like who would do that right and then when he went to the navy and stuff like he wanted to be a nuclear scientist Mm -hmm. and stuff and And obviously, had like the balls to go and be around radiation.
0: Bummer. All right, so Beleaguered Castle is the code name for the unit that runs source code. That's right. But it's also a variation of the game of Solitaire. Oh, yeah? And coupled with all of the you know the card references and the triggering as a result of yes. that, I was like, fuck it, I'm going to learn about Solitaire. Yeah, all right. What's the history? What's going on? <laughs> how now, do people
1: play cards alone?
0: Yeah, how long have they been doing that? <laughs> So it has many names. It's known as Patience by the Brits. In France, it's sometimes called Success or Reusité. I don't know. Other languages <laughs> such as Danish, Norwegian, and Polish often use the word cabal or Kabbalah, which means secret knowledge. And this goes back to the early origins where the outcome of a game may have been thought to be a type of fortune telling. What?
1: No, I'm just reacting to that where it's like, oh, right, because like any, like tea leaves, like anything that totally. exists, they'd be like, oh, well, maybe that's telling us something.
0: Oh, yeah, people give the fucking tarot cards. Maybe <laughs> yeah. there's
1: a reason behind this so
0: in about 1783 it was described in a german book of games as a competitive card game where players would take turns or would play with separate decks of cards so this idea of playing alone probably came out of people practicing and then being like hey I could do this, this without is, these dickheads yelling in my face.
1: This is fun. I don't need to. I don't, I don't need any fucking idiots. I don't need
0: to compete. I'm, I'm in it for just the joy of the game. I
1: can be alone in my home like <laughs> I always want to be. Yeah.
0: Now, by the mid-19th century, solitaire was popular in French society. It's actually a matter of debate whether Napoleon played while in exile on St. Helena, but some say he preferred whist, which involved winning tricks. It's, I don't know. The game,
1: Another single person game? Card games where you
0: have tricks or, I don't know, the fuck. <laughs> Prince Albert in England was known to play And then, like in the late 19th century, all of these rule books came to be. But what I was really interested in is I stumbled upon this article in Slate, which, first of all, hats off, it was called Solitary Confinement. And nicely done. I was like ooh, ooh, ooh. I was really excited. <laughs> now first things first, it, this is from 2008, so I, it's short enough ago that it's worth reading, but right. it's long enough ago that like things have changed in the world. Of... It's
1: crazy I don't think of 2008 as 10 years ago.
0: Oh, I know. <laughs> you it's know? fucking insane, dude. <laughs> I I know. It's like it's almost been 15 years since we Started college. Like, it's fucking bizarre God, at Shut world. up. I know. <laughs> anyway, so this, this article is about, you know, the, sub, the subheading is why we can't stop playing a computerized card game. According to a Microsoft employee who worked on reprogramming Solitaire for Windows Vista, it is the most used program in the Windows universe.
1: That I believe.
0: On its face, it seems pretty trivial, but Computer Solitaire propelled the revolution of personal computing and changed office culture, or so this article wants to talk about. I don't... Think so? Well, okay. Just sit tight and listen. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, it's that's a nice thing that came along with the spreadsheet. Uh huh. <laughs> you know?
0: No, but I mean, okay, just listen, and yeah, then you yeah, can no, no, no. come up with I, your smart-ass ass <laughs> response. Then I'll be all
1: snarky about <laughs> <Yeah>. it. <laughs> because it, I,
0: I thought the same way. I was like revolutionized, guys. But when you do think the office culture thing is where it really yeah, got me, okay, it got me pretty hard.
1: Yeah, because now we have Facebook, but it's like the right. this
0: was pre Facebook wasting time element pre- of, exactly. You're right. Okay. Offices
1: in general were changed already, but office culture was Precisely. changed by solitaire
0: so in the late 60s this guy Paul Alfiel, while he was a medical student invented a new solitaire variant of which there are hundreds by the way but mm-hmm. this one was called Free Cell have you heard of this? Yes. Free Cell
1: is this the one where they all f- 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 I- I'll just oh. uh, you describe <laughs> I remember doing one of the ones on the old Windows computers yeah
0: well because there's a the like, I always just played classic, but there's like fucking like Klondike and Spider Solitaire, and they're all similar okay. enough, but uh. I don't even, I'm like, fuck off. I don't, yeah. Get. yeah, yeah. Now, so he initially, this Alfield guy, initially worked out the math with real cards, but by 1979, he'd coded up a version for the computer network at the University of Illinois, which supported up to a thousand users at a time on terminals connected to central mainframes. So this is 79. Like, that's pretty cool.
1: The internet.
0: Yeah, the internet. <laughs> So Freecell Soon went viral and along with the text-based role-playing game Avatar which I didn't know about but it became one of the early online community's most used programs. Okay. So it was cool cuz it was like I think, honestly, the real big pull was the fact that it would just shuffle the cards for you. Right. Which I'm like, I like shuffling cards, but people are like, ah, <laughs> oh, man. Right. But it also, he, you know, they were able to figure it out how to keep track of player statistics. Mm. So soon they were able to record winning streaks as long as 5,000 consecutive games or whatever.
1: But this is way earlier than I expected to. Totally. Like what I was talking about was like Windows 95 and beyond. Exactly. This is a lot earlier than I I was like, I fuck. Yeah. So
0: in those days, computers were also really new and intimidating, mm-hmm. So Solitaire was easy enough on the computer that once you mastered it, doing some more serious minded tasks didn't seem as daunting.
1: Uh, You give the first for free.
0: Precisely. So as the university mainframes of the 70s gave way to the personal computer, Solitaire once again kind of was at the forefront. Because Mm. according to a 1994 Washington Post article, Microsoft executives wanted Windows Solitaire, quote, to soothe people intimidated by the operating system. Gotcha. This is particularly useful in teaching folks how to use the mouse, mm-hmm. because when Microsoft first preloaded Solitaire as part of the 1990s a Windows 3.0, clicking mm-hmm. and pointing weren't yet second nature. <laughs> (laughs) But also, it was kind of like a handy cover because when a Minnesota state legislator got caught playing during a 1995 debate on education funding, she claimed she was merely doing, quote, homework to improve her mouse dexterity.
1: (laughs) That's hilarious.
0: So this is kind of like the when it starts to be like, oh, you mean I can bullshit on this thing and pretend like I'm being productive?
1: Oh, yeah, and I can minimize the thing when my boss comes by? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, like, it's also funny because this is all very much from the perspective of, like, IBM and Microsoft and stuff like that. where it's like meanwhile over on Apple computers they've had the Macintosh which Mm -hmm. invented the Windows based thing Mm -hmm. and that was like inherently fun to do everything was their philosophy and so it was uh, like they called it the computer for the rest of us and so Windows was at the time going like how do we make things as fun as it is on the Mac what if we just put a solitary game in there then people can start getting hooked
0: but also I don't think that you can overstate that it's like you have a huge swath of the population that is like doesn't want anything to do with this Right. that's great that, that Mac wanted to make things fun, but well, it's like.
1: That was the thing was that it actually was a failure at the start, the Mac, mm-hmm. because it was like all the people who were actually buying computers were like IT departments who don't care right. about that kind of stuff. Yeah. And by the time the iPhone came around, the consumer market was important, whereas the business market was what was important before. Mm-hmm. And so the business people were forcing these workers into using these computers that they didn't want to use. Mm-hmm. And this was a way to make it easier.
0: Well, and especially once personal computing was no longer for business, you right. know? And, and for right. like just the masses and shit. So, yeah, well, and I just never thought about it like that. It's and also, this is all sh- fucking pre-internet, you know? Yeah. So in the pre-internet era, a lot of Solitaire's allure was that it was, first of all, one of the only games around. Mm-hmm. But what's even more surprising is the fact that these, specifically these Windows Solitaires, still remain hugely popular. Again... Reminding everybody that this article is from 2008 But apparently Microsoft's Usability research crew discovered that the Three most played computer games are Just like of all computer games are Mm. Spider Solitaire, Klondike Solitaire, and Freesel. Right. And what's crazy is When you think about like the predictability because even When if somebody from fucking 1990 was blasted to now It's the same exact format, the same exact Aesthetic. It's mostly just for old People to not have to deal with change Which is, is it coddling? (laughs) Is it coddling? But I mean, I fucking love old timey solitaire. I, I mean, I think sometimes we're in this case, I think we're overthinking a, a little bit. We're like, of course, people like solitaire because it's a basic pattern finding game. Right.
1: But as far as like getting people more comfortable with the difficult to understand yeah. computer was something that like. I didn't really I've always thought of the graphical user interface, which is the mouse and keyboard kind of the thing that we know as the thing that brought that. But I didn't even think about how like the games were really driving that. And then also since 2008, I imagine what's really taken over is like 2008 was when the App Store premiered right so since then you'd probably right. say angry birds totally you pick the the iPhone game that's, as like the thing right
0: that's why I have to give the caveat because it's like right. but now it's not because even in 2008 there were still like a bajillion online games but now right. it's even with apps on your phone and stuff is completely and like everything.
1: Twitter came around around in yeah. 2006 was when Twitter was invented so and it was, I
0: don't even think like for old people I don't think they give a shit about Twitter but right. it's like they can easily play fucking pattern finding game on their phone oh, totally you
1: know? but but in terms of of like what we were saying about the way it transformed office culture mm-hmm. and time wasting among oh, yeah. office people. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. It, it is like that first step and now we've, I think, right. moved on. Well, but- let's
0: talk about that a little bit because so the article talks about how there was this new friction added to this boss employee dynamic specifically mm-hmm. because these PC based leisure pursuits mm-hmm. You know, kind of launched this national conversation about how much screwing around is too much, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. By the early nineties, companies like Coca-Cola, Sears, and Boeing either removed Windows pre-installed games or enacted bans on engaging with them. And I remember Mm -hmm. this, there were a few office jobs I had that did not have any of the
1: games. Yeah, they work hard on like you can't go to this website because then you might download a game. Right.
0: In ninety three, a travel agency executive told Business Week, quote, if you let people play games on office computers, you may as well let them insert a TV reception board so they can watch the Beverly Hillbillies. Now, which just, we,
1: I, but we had a TV in the room. It, like I was just thinking about, like I was working at ABC News, right. where I was doing a lot of data entry, which
0: is a television broadcasting company. Yeah, so let's right. be fair. Right, they
1: should <laughs> have like, a TV in there. I had a TV, so yeah, all right. You know what? <laughs> Never mind. Like, I needed and, to have a TV, <laughs> but in '93 though. <laughs> no. Well, and even despite yeah.
0: these like regular bogus productivity studies that were estimating that solitaire and the like were draining 800 trillion dollars a year from the economy. Yeah, you're gonna
1: t- attribute like, any money amount to that. Yeah, because
0: then people being chained to their desks, like not taking smoke breaks, not taking lunch breaks and stuff. Right. Also, there's a court like there's a correlation between that because people are like, oh well, man, as well take a break at my desk. Right. And right. That means that your lunch break is probably gonna be shorter than if you actually went the out and got some lunch. Right, right. Finally, there's this woman, Dr. Marissa Hecht Orzak, who is an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School. And she opened the first clinic for computer addiction in 1996. Her inspiration was having herself become obsessed with beating her personal solitaire score. (laughs) And in 2006, she wrote a Washington Post article where she was saying, I kept playing solitaire more and more. My late husband would find me asleep at the computer. I was missing deadlines. I knew something had to be done. So she did that. Now, of course, more than a decade on Orzac's facility now, or at least in 2008, mostly sees World of Warcraft and EverQuest fiends.
1: Yeah, I imagine so. I
0: don't know EverQuest, but I've heard of War- Warcraft. Well, just these
1: these MMORPGs is what it's called, uh-huh. massively multiplayer online role right. playing game. I can and, see the
0: addiction factor there, man.
1: Right, cuz it's literally and that's the worry where people look at these virtual worlds and like that future I described with nanobots and go, "Why wouldn't people just live in Second Life?" Yeah. And like have this body that they choose in this virtual world where they're interacting with other people, but it's it works the way they choose. They get to be in the matrix.
0: Right. Well, because the thing with solitaires, it's like, "Yeah, you can it, you, It's in the fucking name, man. Like, you're going to feel lonely if <laughs> yeah, you're like, I've been spending yeah. my whole life just playing Solitaire. Solitary
1: confinement <laughs> was a purposeful choice.
0: Yeah. Whereas if you, yeah, if you feel like you're scratching that itch of, you mm. know, social interaction, but you've never actually left the couch, it right. makes it a lot easier.
1: One thing in terms of the lack of productivity because of things like Facebook oh, yeah. or Solitaire and stuff like that, let's not forget that, before the computer, people had to do all spreadsheets by hand and the people who were doing that, their jobs almost don't exist anymore or they were able to do stuff that literally would take multiple weeks in minutes. Yeah. And so the amount of productivity increase that happened in the 80s versus the amount of productivity decrease that wound up happening in the aftermath when games came around, Right. I think is ultimately we increased productivity by a lot. Oh, hell yeah. And so we actually have the luxury to fuck around at work all day. Well,
0: it's like we, this facade that it's ever really truly about productivity. When you're talking about certain office jobs, I'm not, right. I'm like, I'm very much broad brushing, but like I've worked a lot of fucking. Office jobs, mm-hmm. uh, not even just like office office. I'm talking like reservationist for a fucking restaurant uh-huh, kind of uh-huh. job. That it's like it's office job light. Like right. there's no actual tasks. You're just there, and mm-hmm. it's based on who calls you. And it's like you cannot tell me that in those in the in-between moments before someone decides to call that I can't fucking check my email. Do some of this. You want me to literally just sit straight ahead, but that makes you feel better because you're still paying me for my time. I know. You're paying me for my body to be in this room. Right. I could easily do this. You know, I have my cell phone. Just have it forwarded. Well,
1: like to take it to my job at ABC News, I was doing data entry, which at that time was done much more quickly and efficiently than it was done 20 years earlier. Right. And so could i really make the argument that like well i'm only going to input like 10 things today and the rest of the time i'm going to fuck around because like they only used to be able to input like three or four things a day and so fucking like why are they paying me all this money to do this to sit around on my ass like there's a weird situation here
0: yeah
1: you should be productive for your time that you're paid but also like we have these tools that make us super productive which allows us to be not productive
0: yeah people and breaks man
1: people need breaks
0: anyway <laughs> raise the minimum wage <laughs> oh my
1: god <laughs> Did you have any favorite lines in this movie?
0: Uh, I'm not sure what my favorite was, but I took a few down.
1: I assume they were all Jeffrey Wright and intenseness. Oh
0: yeah, I'm sure I didn't. <laughs> I unfortunately didn't track down who said them, but source code is time reassignment.
1: Uh-huh. Just that telling you what like it is. That sounds Jeffrey Wright. <laughs>
0: I, it wasn't designed to alter the past. It was designed to affect the future. Yeah. Which and then. Yeah.
1: Da- but it is affecting a parallel universe, yeah. and so whatever it was designed for doesn't matter because that's what it's doing.
0: Right. <laughs> None of these, I don't know. I think They're I was good. reaching. I was reaching yeah. for something.
1: I didn't really have anything beyond, like, temporary access to an alternate dimension. And, you know, like, there's
0: interesting I ideas I should in here. have written down, you know, what would you do if you only had eight minutes left? <laughs> I'd make those moments
1: count. Yeah. That's in the trailer. Yeah. <laughs> With that, please... Rate and review us on iTunes. You can find us at oh, that's a thing.com and on Facebook and Twitter.
0: I'm at itsajoyamiya on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter.
1: And I'm at Jeffrey Ekman. And you can find us all here next week doing the movie House of Wax.
0: <laughs> oh, the one with a- Paris Hilton, guys. Yep. It's a trash fire. <laughs>
1: it's fun. It's a fun movie. Bye.
0: Bye.